This week I'm joined once again by independent Rudolf Steiner scholar Dale Brunsvold to continue our discussion on the work of Rudolf Steiner. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support the podcast, gain access to some exclusive content, or just keep everything running, then please find links for the Patreon in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Dale Brunsvold, thanks very much once again for joining us on Hermitics Podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So, we are, as people can imagine, uh, because no conversation on Steiner is really going to cover his full work, um, we're going to have a second part here on the, the, the work of Rudolf Steiner after the extremely popular, uh, just so you know, Dale, extremely popular first part that we did um, that many people really enjoyed and have got a lot of really great feedback on. But of course, you know, um, if that is their first introduction to Steiner, it's sort of like, yeah, people were saying, oh, there's so much packed in it. There was so much packed in it. And I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, there was, but not even the tip of the iceberg. So we have to do this part too. Um, and... You know, I it's difficult to say really where we left off because with Steiner, everything's sort of this synthesis and things do connect together. And that was the big question that we left out and didn't really have time for last time, which is this extremely important thing for Steiner, which is um, the synthesis of science and spirituality, which seems in a way for many people, um, for people who are sort of orthodox on both sides, you know, scientists and those who are perhaps more traditionally religious, uh, it seems anathema to, to synthesize the two, you know, often people like to separate these things. So, so just to really open up with this very broad question, uh, you know, what, what is Steiner's purpose with this idea of synthesizing science and spirituality? You know, James, I hadn't realized, uh, how rich that question was until <laughs> you described it really so beautifully. It absolutely is the case, isn't it? That, uh, religion is very upset hearing, uh, scientific formed ideas, uh, bearing down on their sacrosanct ideas and science maybe is even more angry because they're really the powerhouse of the world <laughs> that mm. you would bring anything in from the uh, some spiritual craziness to uh you know to invest into the phenomena of the natural world oh that that's impossible kind of thing yeah and that is a struggle isn't it and it might be one of the reasons steiner is to sort of set aside even given the astonishing amount of uh a rich, pragmatic, practical results that his work has given. And they do begrudgingly, right, admit that <laughs> that's true of them, but they don't go deeper. You know, there's no way they're going to go deeper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Steiner really is saying that science left to itself uh, can't really take hold of what's approaching us now. That the co complexities of the, org you know, the earth and these things are we're sort of being called upon by all the crises around us, in my opinion, from Steiner's work to uh, change our consciousness so that we're bringing in a, a larger panorama of actual data, but now not only based on the physical organs of perception, but these other organs of perception that live in the bodies that we talked about last time. I hope we talked about them. <laughs> I don't remember all the details so that we would have uh, astral organs of perception that would begin objectively now because science has done this thing to our souls and we really should be grateful for that however problematic its existence is now right but that uh the astral uh information let's call it that kind of a grotesque way of saying it but okay uh gives us more for our thinking life to take hold of and integrate and understand our etheric organs of perception give us again more to integrate and understand and he felt that 
once we have then really a richer, more holistic, literal perception of the world, that so many things will occur. A, a much more natural harmonization between people will occur. A, a harmonizing with the earth will occur. We can see these things, for instance, I think, at least in the beginnings of Waldorf education. What is education going to look like when people are aspiring to a deeper picture of the human being, even if they themselves don't necessarily have those capacities yet. What about agriculture? How do we work with agriculture so that we're healing the earth rather than just jamming nitrogens and all these substances into the soil and bathing our crops in poisons in order to ripen them faster so we can eat them quicker and all these types of things, right? These are all scientific ideas, <laughs> right? In that sense, right? So, so in that then, we just do get a synthesis of science and spirituality because the astral world is the, the spiritual world. The etheric world is the spiritual world, right? And once those, once that data, once that perceptual content enters into this consciousness that we should aspire to, uh, we will have a new picture of the world. But you know what? It will actually be what Steiner called, James, right? Spiritual science. So he really wanted science as it was to be as it was and then extend it to broaden it to bring it to what he called spiritual science or anthroposophy that's a, so how's that sound to begin mm, i think it's a, i think it's a hell of a beginning uh of course loads of questions from that i mean one thing one thing i'll bring in i'll just see what you make of it um, and see if this fits within the steinerian steinerian picture of things uh recently i was doing some talks on meditations on the tarot uh the book uh, anonymously written but they think it was written by T uh, valentin tomberg i don't know if you've come across it sure um, sure yeah and it was written by him. Yeah. Um, and he gives this definition between science and spirituality, actually, which I found very helpful, which is that um, spirituality, or for him, of course, he's sort of writing with this very uh, Catholic Christian emphasis, is that you have this revelation, you have the divine that comes down from the above to the below. And then once that's in the below via a prophet or via the writing, via you know, scripture, you then use that to then go back up and build your laws from that. Whereas what he's saying is that science doesn't begin from any of that. It actually begins from the below just on its own and then sort of creates its own false above. So would that be what Steiner sees science doing when it just acts by itself and, you know, draws all its lines and says, look, we don't want to know about other things. We just want to know about this empirical, validated, you know, tested things that we're doing down here. Well, I think that is that natural modality and form of our consciousness, right? We are a materialistic age. It's perhaps the most complete separation from the spiritual world. Again, giving that its due, right? That's ever existed. I, I, I sometimes thought lately of all the hierarchies as they came into being throughout history, the angels and the archangels and everything, it seems it's possible that only the human hierarchy that is coming into being now has been actually completely separated from the spiritual world. And in that modality is creating something that has never existed in all of creation in terms of freedom and in terms of through freedom, an actual love that's not kind of bathed in the glory and grace of the Godhead, but is, though it is as well, of course, but, but is really created out of some... A kernel in us that came out of this extreme darkness 
that that the separation from the Godhead occurred. So that that's that side of it. But I want to ask that a question from you. So when he says a false above, that the science mm -hmm. has created a false above, I, I just don't know what you meant by that. Could you ex so the, uh, expand on that? So the the way he understands this is that um, you know science science doesn't begin from something that's been revealed to us from above. So it doesn't begin from, say, revelation or scripture or, or say, for instance, the above comes down. It's uh, imbued in someone who is open to it, such as a, an apostle, a prophet, someone who's very open to the above. They then write it or teach it, and that's how it gets sort of spread through to the masses. So there's sort of a dissension, which is really an ascension. But whereas science, it doesn't, it doesn't have anything like that that's actually been revealed to it. So it begins solely from the human uh, point of view. And then its own above is, it, it begins just from this empirical below. And then it develops things that it calls laws, which then, you know, after a long, long time, it says, right now, this is a principle. And so then it's above is all these principles and laws, which is it's only ever really made from the below. And it wasn't something that was revealed in a sort of divine way, but that's something that was sort of, you know, wrestled out from human perception alone. Isn't that subtle? Yeah, that's very subtle, mm. subtle argument. Yeah. Um, sure. I think that was, you know, part of, so that is science. You just described science <laughs> right there, right in a nutshell. And Steiner would then say, or did say that that was the, uh, the darkness we went through that was the tempering of the soul so it so before that time exactly you had the prophets and you had people in fact before the prophets you had entire cultures steiner says right that were naturally clairvoyant and in this natural clairvoyance that an entire culture had so it didn't even think about the fact that elemental spirits and angels and archangels or whatever were around them it was it was as natural as you and i looking out and seeing trees and grass and going you know and not thinking twice about it who writes that down you know mm. so uh so they were in that modality but in that modality of that kind of clairvoyance their consciousness was filled with the presence of spiritual beings and in some ways, they were coerced in a certain kind of way, or almost like a hive of activity, you could say, that we see now and look back at pyramids and stuff like that and think, what an intelligent individual created that. And Steiner would say, uh, no, there was an intelligence that was really there, but it lived in these people in a very different way from what you and I would imagine now. And this has to do with that, the evolution of consciousness that's been occurring. Okay, and this is a flabbergasting idea to take in. Believe me, I think about it all the time. Is that really true? Is is our is our understanding of history that bad? <laughs> you know, that's a bad. If we take our modality of consciousness and just stick it back five, ten thousand years ago and say everybody was that way as we mm -hmm. are, they were just stupid. That's just you know that's the conceit of a scientific orientation, by the way, as well, right? So, so what what happened then is as the fall. Uh, continued it didn't happen in one moment right the fall is this uh receding of the spiritual beings that were involved in our consciousness more and more and as they did uh the vacancy the void that that produced in our consciousness began to be filled up with the experiences of our senses you might say that we desperately reached out for those sense experiences because of the void we were having inside of us i'm thinking of like people that are trapped in li those lily ponds right and they would uh, drive them insane because they wouldn't give them any uh, physical stimuli right and some of those horror stories kind of thing you know you know what lily ponds are um yeah sense, sense deprivation tanks oh okay no oh, oh yeah. Sense, yeah 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 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you you can drive someone insane because you shut off their their ability to have their their senses filled with information mm. and this emptiness arises in us. Okay, so just to give that picture. So as that occurs then, and we we kind of reach into the physical world and draw in these sense these uh, sense perceptions, we take hold of them in a far more vigorous and uh, serious way than we did when the spiritual beings were filling our consciousness all the time. And then we began to understand, to relate, to uh, codify, to conceptualize in a very serious manner. Uh, and this really began hit its sweet spot, Steiner said, in 1413 with the beginnings of the consciousness soul era, even though we have, of course, the wonderful cultures of Greece and Rome. But there, it was at that time that it really took over, you might say, almost all of mankind, humanity, and it, you know, science and stuff just went nuts from then on, as it were. So, so the point is there is I'm not really disagreeing with Tom Brick, except I'm wondering why. So he's he's seeing these as parallel. Okay, I'm kind of asking a question. Hmm. So he's seeing these as parallel lines, and it's really the religious that's more important. Steiner's saying, no, now that science has created what it's created through the work we'll do in our inner lives. We will now bring science, art, and religion back into one whole eventually as time goes on. And, and that will just be happen because of the richer and richer experiences we'll start to have as we do these exercises and these contemplations. So that uh, what you, but it was all, the, and it wasn't the fruits. Okay, so it wasn't so much the fruits of science that we're looking at right now from Steiner's point of view. But in the more uh, Eastern-oriented sense of the striving, this new striving of the scientific orientation that changed the life of the soul. Mm. And it changed the life of the soul into a certain objectivity that when it enters back into the spiritual world, it won't just be taken up by that world and lost in it. It will stay its own entelechy, its own individuality in that world. It will be a being of a new hierarchy. Now, I don't think Tom Berg, and, and it is baffling to me why he left anthroposophy, right? A part of it was, yes, the cold uh, aspects and attitudes of anthroposophists. Steiner had died. And also, I think he was quite, a, you know, he, I can read in his work, he was an incredibly deep man. And I don't think he uh, got the respect that he felt he deserved from them that they didn't recognize his greatness might be a trivial way of saying it. And so that might've been also one, I don't, can't psychologize the reason because I really don't know, but I've always been baffled why Tom Berg separated from the society because that was his beginning. That was everything that gave him everything, I think in his whole life. And then he found himself in Catholicism instead. But uh, did I, did I answer that question, I sir? Think so I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one, I guess one little question would be, would be, I mean, for Steiner, could there even be such a thing as sort of science by itself? You know, real for him, real science has to be has have this uh, holistic connection to all these other things. Otherwise, is it is it something else entirely for him? Well, it will it will be it'll become a kind of form of evil, right? What won't it? I mean, in a certain sense, what are we already saying? Science, in one of its trajectories, is saying yes. Wow, consciousness! It's just electrical activity hmm. in the brain. Well, okay. Well, so is uh, so is uh, the activity in a computer. It's only electrical activity in the chips. So why not somehow fuse the two, and just transfer this thing we call consciousness into into machines, right? That's think of it now. That's just mm -hmm. sort of a common sense extrapolation of one picture of scientific understanding. Would you agree with that? 
I think so. Yeah. 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 And I, it, it's chilling to me. Right. Mm-hmm. But and that's the idea of an immortality then and all these kinds of things that come out of that. So you could say that if science, let's just say this. And I, I don't know if Steiner really ever said it as brusquely as I am. But if, if science continues in its way, it'll become an objective evil in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, like Steiner says, this is so fascinating. He says, really, the golden thread. The blessing that the good gods gave humanity to keep it connected to its evolution was death. That death is what constantly allows us to extricate ourselves from our physical organism, enter back into the spiritual world, enter into communion with the hierarchies, rebuild a new spiritual seed that we will then use for our next incarnation etc etc right and think of it what we want to do is we want to stay completely on the physical plane that's where it's at and we need immortality there that's pure araman that's a the purest picture of araman you could imagine mm. okay and and also we we tend to on that physical plane we we put all our efforts really in even even for young people now who aren't suffering and aren't close to death put all their efforts in the ignorance in in willfully ignoring you know death and suffering which are really in that same vein of uh mortality yeah they're they're a bad thing you see we've got to fix that no aging no aging i'm going to go in and botox my face into (laughs) you know what i mean it's all become totally superficial totally the surface of things now, I don't know why that's happened, because I wouldn't think science would only want the surface of things, obviously. It's a very, very deep. And Steiner, you know, fell over himself in, in uh, appreciation of science. He's given us a soul that can know the spiritual world now in a higher and purer way than has ever been true of all the prophets of the past. Mm-hmm. So he's claiming, right? And se- seemingly, in my opinion, a magnificent example of it, too. <laughs> right? So it is, right? So those two things coming together. Now, it's, you know, I, I don't know, you know, and, you know, I'm going to have to say this, that I've heard, and though it's more anecdotal, that even religion, if it stays on its path and doesn't really uh, grow, doesn't really evolve and change, will also have a very problematic uh, existence in the future, too. I don't want to say out and out evil, but but a worrisome thing will be happening there as well. Mm. So it's these the synthesis is kind of has to happen. And you could say, you know, anthroposophy ultimately is a force of healing. It's not a set of abstract ideas. It's not uh, a dogma to be believed. Steiner says once this elixir of life starts to work in us through good practical work and good practical meditation, it's only a healing thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel that more and more. I don't know that's true, but I, I do. It, just, it feels right to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a really big thing that you, you brought in that I'm just so, I'm so, so in agreement with you. I think, you know, you mentioned this crisis and it makes me think, you know, a lot of people talk about the crises of modernity or the crises of the modern world. And they tend to relate this back to Nietzsche, you know, the infamous death of God. But really, could we say that Steiner once again goes one further and he says no this is a death of consciousness you know when we think about the great chain of being with Aquinas or other people have their own forms of as we were as you've already mentioned hierarchical understanding of a being you know a being that can evolve uh, and this is language that's used by many uh, mystics or spiritualists um, the crisis really is one of the death of consciousness right consciousness is slowly becoming less full very nice. 
I, that's good. I really like that. I mean, I don't like that. I like that. <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah, yes. really well yeah. said, actually well said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if, if we go past it's, uh, if we go past it's, uh, proper time, right? What it was, what did Steiner say evil was Steiner said evil is something that was good at one time that has persisted into a time when it's inappropriately existing. Wow. And, and in that inappropriate existing, it manifests in that culture, in that new time as evil. So that's very interesting, right? So for instance, he would say that about atavistic forms of consciousness, where we use channeling, where we give up the ego that has been bequeathed by the Christ, you might say, and want to go back into, you might say, these, these more ecstasy-oriented forms of consciousness. We can possibly get information through those. We can learn things through those. He says, the problem is you aren't there. You aren't in the midst of it existentially as a moral agency. Mm. And that's gradually just going to become more and more decadent if we don't battle against that that's a, you know that's controversial i know because there's a uh channeling is a you know is, is in vogue you know it's still a, it's still right there so tell me more about the death of consciousness <laughs> no, well, it's a good I mean, one i like it uh, well it's the you know i think um i mean i'm sort of drawing in gurdjieff drawing in new spence okay but i mean sure and also you know i mean i think i think it's found in all spiritual parts you have to if there's some sort of form of enlightenment this idea of in a certain sense moving from darkness to light or growing or evolving there has to be there has to be not so much as a, a form of superiority which is i think is often how a lot of people misconceive it they think oh you're 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 you think because you've grown you're better i don't think it's that it's more um you know Aquinas he did call it a fullness of being so it's not a superiority it's a, an intensification in that vertical way you know a, a greater relationship with the above and so I think I think one of the things that's often missed with this um, this idea of a hierarchy of being of you know Gurdjieff says get out of sleep to to waking sleep to uh, self-remembering and then to conscious man um, and if we have in the you know the Thomistic tradition of minerals to plant plants to animals to man to angels to archangels to god between you know it, within man is levels of being we've all met people who are you know more conscious uh, more yes. attentive more there and i think one of the things which is criminally in a way overlooked probably because people just don't want to admit to it is that often we say oh yeah here's the here's the the hierarchy the um the the levels of growth but I would always say, and this is the thing that I pe think people miss out, is that implicitly, if you're implying that there is a potential for growth, then there is inherently a potential for degrowth and for dissension. And I think that's what's really been happening since, you know, with the crisis of modernity is quite literally a consciousness, which is uh, on a collective level, level heading back towards sleep. And, you know, you've mentioned that thousands and thousands of years ago the collective consciousness was one which was more attuned to gods these weren't hallucinations people had rituals you know people were far more um you know in tune with something higher probably because they didn't have to look at screens and be bombarded with modern noise all day and i think the way that we're heading is quite literally uh toward you know one instance of this um I think is that we are seeing more and more people who quite literally do not have an internal monologue. And I think that is spiritually an absolutely terrifying thought that we could be moving to a point where people's consciousness is, uh, or is, is destroyed to the, you know, to the point where they're, they're almost just an automaton. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. <laughs> no, really. No, I, and I agree sadly that that's a worry. It is absolutely a worry, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. I mean, you think about the, the emphasis on the body and on sports and these strange activities that, that you know, of, of steroids to build your organisms up and all these things that, that the surface is all that matters. And you're right. Where is a, a, that inner monologue going to go or have a place if it's, a, if it's just sensational experience after sensational experience after sensational experience <laughs> all day long? And I've got to have them. I've got to do it this way. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, so, so we have these people like Kerjeff and Steiner and others that have seemingly come along. Yeah. And, and not accidentally, it's some kind of cosmic plan to hopefully start an awakening process or to battle against these, uh, these tendencies of, I, I, you could think of it as animalism too, couldn't you? This animality, because our astral body, right, is mm. part of the animal realm and it has all that in there. And to the degree that we battle against that, and I, and I think the word for battling against that animality in our astral body is called education, mm. right? Mm. That if we don't have education, then we will sort of just devolve into this destruction of our consciousness into something that's just animalistic. And I, you know, I think we see that in some cases in very scary ways already. You know what I mean? Mm. How are you but, understanding the word? How are you understanding the definition of um, education? And, 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 and how I'm understanding that is that the sense of self, the sense of the ego, the sense of the eyes brought into relation because it is, you know, animals aren't moral or immoral. They're just the word doesn't fit, right? Mm -hmm. So it's only the it's only the human ego in this amazing way that has moral agency. So it's about bringing that moral agency into relationship in the human being, into the physical body and the etheric body and the astral body, right? And that that's that you might say that's what education's always been, even though it's only in Steiner's time that maybe we're becoming more conscious of that. So how do we do that? How do, how do we let, we, we, did we talk about the development of these bodies in it? Yeah, we, we, we did. Yeah. I mean, okay, uh, good. Yeah. Uh, well, so, yeah. not in relation to education, but we definitely talked about, you know, Steiner's, uh, you know, uh, understanding, uh, I think in relation to uh, his book on the occult sciences, you know, because it's sort yeah. of needed as the foundation. Yeah. And so in, in, in the world of education, right, they're worried about, well, the etheric body is growing now. So this is what should be happening in the child. So from one to seven years old or zero to seven, there's certain things you do and certain things you don't do so that the etheric body, as it's unfolding its first time in the organism, can be can do what it wants to do naturally, healthily. Right. And then from seven to 14, you've got the the kind of uh, if uh uh, awakened etheric body and the astral body is still kind of asleep but it's 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 gradually waking up and the teachers are very aware of how to change knowledge into story change knowledge into imagistic forms that sort of has knowing has you might say modern knowledge encoded in it so that the modality of consciousness that child has at that time stays that way so we don't go in and go, i'm going to make you as smart as i can as fast as i can in my adult understanding of that word Steiner says, you do that, you're just damaging the human being. If they're not ready, it will happen of itself if you understand what you've got in front of you. Did we talk about this before? We didn't, I don't think so. No, no, okay, this idea okay. of it happening by itself, no. Well, there's, a, there's an aspect to our unfolding that's true, profound, organic unfolding, okay? And, and in that, because we're plastic, because we're human beings, we can get into a child's consciousness at three years old and get them learning the alphabet and getting to read. And, and if they really want to do that completely out of themselves, that's one issue. But if most of the time they don't, they, I mean, most of the time they're imitative 
sense organs and they're just absorbing the world in this magnificent way that stuns us to this day right how the heck can they learn all they learn so fast right and it has to do with the sort of an absence of a of a consciousness that we think is the one they should have right away well we you should be an adult right away well Steiner says sure Go ahead. If you do that, you're going to rob those etheric forces of what they're naturally doing. And that child's going to get rheumatisms and arthritis and all these things when they're 50 and 60 years old, because you've already begun deforming the creature. Mm -hmm. That's a mm -hmm. pretty wild claim. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's a pretty wild claim. And, and why? Well, because we don't have a picture of the human being anymore. All we are are sacks of chemicals with <laughs> behaviors. Right. And that and you, could, you should be able to do anything with that you want to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a horrible common sense to a to science in that regard. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. If you know, here's science approaching the human being again, and it doesn't know what the human being is, hmm. but it's so powerful in itself and so magnificent in its results in the natural world that, of course, they must apply to this other part of the natural world. Well, the problem is, is the human being isn't the natural world. It's the spiritual world. Hmm. Now, I mean, what do we do? Yeah. You know? I mean, and this this thing makes me think of this this quote that I love by Picasso, which I've said on this, this podcast so many times, but he, Picasso said, you know, it took me my entire life to paint like a child again. Nice. Wow. And um, I often think about that, you know, in relation to from scripture, the idea of come to uh, come unto the Lord as a little child, you know, and Jesus speaks of his apostles uh, as little children. And that idea of, you know, people, obviously, if you read it literally, you go, oh, I've got, to, you've got to be a child. It's like, no, it's what you're saying. It's this, this um, open, heartfelt sincere plasticity of the mind which allows children or the idea of what it is to be a child in that sense to truly be open and as you say once what Gurdjieff would call personality or maybe Steiner might call a modern ego or something of that once something starts to crystallize in you and confine you that's when things start to go awry yeah yeah that, I mean at too at too early a time too let's say I mean there are these you know, crystallizations, I think, if that if I'm not misusing your understanding of the word that are going to occur, right, as mm -hmm. as they occur in their appropriate moments, you know, what we have at that at when the astral body is born at 14, right? Yeah, uh, we have that formal operations thinking that the Piaget says, just simply starts manifesting. It's an organic unfoldment, right? And, uh, and there's various kinds of these as we go along that Steiner describes. Uh, that are kind of crystallizations, if, 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 if I'm using that word correctly. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, crystallizations aren't always bad, you know, as, okay, as, as okay, Gurdjieff says, and yeah. as I imagine Steiner would say, you do need certain forms of personality once you get to these levels. You know, you once you get to 14, you need certain new, new forms of, as you said, structured thinking to even be able to deal with the world. You know, it's not yep. literally being a child. <laughs> Yeah, and that is a mysterious phrase. I mean, it's, there's a there is a beautiful lecture by Steiner, and I'm sorry I can't give you where it is, where he talks about the first three years of unfoldment, the very magical time, uh, and he says where the 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 Christ being is actually present in those years, and in a very beautiful way, and is involved in the these three great deeds that occur in the unfolding of a child, and they are. Uh, this strange uh, orientation of standing vertically, of becoming perpendicular to the earth. Okay, mm -hmm. this is a profound, profound thing that's happening. That the, all the hierarchies and the Christ being are involved in. The human being is, you know, just used almost in that. And then after that, surprisingly, he says, speaking happens second, 
and thinking happens after speaking. Mm. Now, that's fascinating. If you study yeah. education and Vygotsky and stuff, who argues that, that speaking is an organ of cognition in children that they speak to each other in a way that when you listen to them, you almost don't understand what they're saying if they're doing a group project or something. But somehow you, after a while, you realize that it's almost its own organ of them seeing what they're doing together. Mm-hmm. It's really quite fascinating. But, and so Steiner then says this becoming a child has to do, and I think you, what were those three things you said, uh, Gurdjieff said? He said there's self, so you said self-remembering. Uh, in relation to what, sorry? Uh, uh, spiritual development. You said there's three things. One of them was self-remembering and then self-knowing or something. There were um, you sort of you begin with self-observation and then there's... Self-observation. So, so self-observation is, you know, quite very sincerely looking inwards. Self-remembering is self-observation, but you're also conscious of yourself in that moment doing it. And beyond that, you would sort of be a conscious, conscious person. And before all that, there's sort of the morning preparation. I'd say there's three stages in a way. Okay. And then what's after self-remembering? Well, I think at that, at that point, I think if you could prolong that and stay within that state to a certain degree, you would become a conscious, a conscious person. You know, someone who's, okay, gotcha. yeah. who's who is both aware of what they're looking at and aware of themselves looking at what they're looking at. So at no point are they drawn fully into something. They're not identified with the outside world. They're aware of it. They can do what it with it what they want. But they're not, you know, they they would no longer say I am angry, right? They would they would have an understanding of that. They're not identified with it. Okay, I got you. Yeah, I was trying to find where Steiner talks about that, you know, these transformations that happen in his book Knowledge of Higher Worlds, and they're very similar in some ways. So I'm sure, in fact, they're the same <laughs> if we got right down to it. You know oh, what I mean? I'd have so, yeah. Uh, yeah, they would be. They'd just be kind of different emphases here and there. But yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm interested in why why standing vert- vertically is before the before the word you know what is that symbolizing for steiner what's the the importance of that vertical standing for the i guess the one or two year old yeah that's it's uh i mean i guess because the human being does that i mean even though he'll he mentions the exceptions in the animal realm that are not complete but have the orientation toward the vertical uh you know but there's a lot of things that are going on there and i'm not a real expert at it but you know you might say that the human being is the only one that really sacrifices completely to the earth the lower half of their body so that the upper half of their body becomes free in a in a in a complete way even apes and those kinds of creatures still have still use their arms as legs you know what i mean they still mm-hmm. they're not really vertical so they're they're not and so in that separation the higher part of our being actually is exposed to the cosmos and allows uh, an, this this uh, life of thought you might say to have the qualities that it has here and i'm being kind of loosey-goosey here because i don't i don't have a good concrete set of clear concepts on it but but yeah so i mean we think about how we lose our consciousness that we lay you know parallel to the earth <laughs> and uh you know and that's how we uh, become unconscious creatures by and large mm. so yeah. there it's a it's a it's a it's a mystery in that regard right but and sorry i brought it up in such an incomplete way because it's a little aggravating when i do that I don't no, no, no no it's completely, no it's completely <laughs> fine i mean I, all, all i was thinking is in, in relation to that idea of you know the devolution of consciousness it's funny how uh, a lot of people are becoming sort of sat down all day, arced back, right. you know, eyes eyes uh, cast down to their phones or to the floor. It's the physicality represents the uh, the internal uh, uh, as nice. always. 
Yeah, again, that's a harrowing and true picture. Yeah, <laughs> even our Steiner really did bemoan the sedentary nature of even his own society that was happening. And, and I never thought about it before. Yeah, when you're sitting, you're really not vertical anymore. <laughs> you know, so you're you're like in a dream state or something, staring at the TV screen or your phone or something. Yeah, yeah you're allow allowing, <laughs> allowing the blow to just hold you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, which which does actually bring me. I mean, managed to to segue here somewhat, not so clumsily, but this. So you mentioned there that Steiner bemoaned the fact that they were the sedentary nature of things, and this is where I want to bring in uh, something that you you mentioned quite a few times in the first talk. We didn't have an opportunity to really open on it, and I I got the impression that this is something of Steiner's that you're really fond of, but it's the agriculture. So this idea of you know I bring this in with the Steiner schools and the Steiner form of education, you know, bemoaning once again, the sedentary lifestyle and this agri agriculture thing. I mean, super open question, I guess, but the importance of that connection to the earth, the connection to agriculture and that, that connection of being outside of, of, of doing in that sense. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things happened there. One was a very puzzling moment where I believe was Aaron Reed Pfeiffer, who became an agricultural guy, as well, where they were in a car after some lecture and they were going somewhere to go to another lecture that Steiner was going to give. And, and he asked Steiner in the car, as I recall the anecdote, he said, what's the greatest hindrance in the future for the spiritual development of humanity? Good mm -hmm. question, huh? Mm -hmm. And Steiner said, nutrition. <laughs> wow. So what was going to happen, and, and then this, you know, it was something that you know, he didn't give these lectures on agriculture till almost the end of his life, was that we're going to see food that looks like food, but there will be no life in that food anymore. Sound familiar? Yeah, <laughs> sounds very familiar. You know, like they say in America, you got to pay extra for non-poison food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that, that's already kind of so backwards and upside down. And so, so here we are talking about this animalization of humanity, this destruction of consciousness. And we could say from Steiner's, you know, breathtakingly practical seeing of our world through his spiritual eyes that he saw that as you deteriorate the food of people right you are what you eat that they're, they're going to try for spiritual abilities and try to do the exercises and more and more these hindrances are going to come at them because they're not getting enough nutrition so down there and he was already in the 1913 1912 they were already doing agricultural experiments at the Gertianum in Switzerland and in, in Stuttgart and some of these other places. And but eventually, and then in 1924, there was this uh, Count Kaiserlink from the uh, Silesia area who, uh, who uh, had asked Steiner a number of times uh, if he would give a, a course of lectures on agriculture. Because especially if you can imagine in Europe, for 400 years, the deteriorations of their agricultural methods and just literally working that soil in a semi-conscious way was deteriorating it, right? Even if they were trying to do a good job, it was still really hard on soil that had been growing plants for hundreds of years compared to America, right? Kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So so uh, he, he would always go poo-poo them because he was so busy, he just didn't have time. And finally, there's a wonderful story. Uh, the, the Count sent his uh, nephew and said, camp on his doorstep, until he pulls out his notebook and writes down the dates for those lectures he's going to give us. Because once Steiner did that, then he was committed, you know, then he would come. And sure enough, then he did and gave this magnificent course, the biodynamic agricultural cycle that is renowned and some argue one of the most esoteric things Steiner ever gave. Uh, for two weeks, he was there. And it was really quite something. It's wonderful to read many of the books, actually, that have been written about that, that time. And... Uh, 
So out of that, what do you have? Well, again, I'm not an expert on these things, James, but I've played around with it over the years. And, and, and a lot of it is old folk wisdom. A lot of it is old. He lived in farming communities. He worked with farmers around as a child. So he had a lot of their knowledge before that got lost, right? Mm-hmm. They had that old, mm-hmm. that, but, but at the same time, spiritually, he could see what he could see as well and talked about, so you've heard of some of these things. So for instance, he said compost piles are sort of like stomachs on the surface of the earth. I haven't, I haven't heard this. <laughs> okay. And if you design that compost pile correctly and bring in homeopathic doses of things like silica and quartz and proper manures of animals, okay, and these kinds of things, and, 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 and do all this in, in connection and in concert with the sun and the planets in the movements that they're doing, they will also ray down cosmic spiritual forces into that compost pile. And together you can dynamize that soil out of spiritual science to a quality that the earth itself can't even achieve. Mm, wow. That's astonishing. That's back, okay? back to the idea of hierarchy, right? Drawing down yes. higher forces. Exactly. Wow. And so here, and again, as we were saying before, spiritual science, science will never do this. It won't, it doesn't see in homeopathic substances, anything there, right? <laughs> right. So, but he's saying what, what the homeopathic substances are. Do you, have you ever heard that before? It's beautiful from anthroposophy that every, every, pro, it's a digression. Every thing in the world that you and I see, let's say in the natural world, ultimately is a precipitation of something that was once a cosmic process. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's almost common sense. So in homeopathy, when you take some of that physical dead detritus, the substance that's there, and you put it in these uh, waters and you stir it vigorously in a certain manner in such a way that the, the substance itself is just gone. And then you take a tenth of that and put that in a, another gallon of water and do it. And then a tenth of that and put that in a mm. gallon of water. Steiner's saying that ultimately what you're doing if you do it right is you're bringing you're going backwards you're going back from the physical substance and making it and using it sort of as a pointer if you think about it from almost a computer science point of view a pointer back to the cosmic process which recognizes you might say you're doing that and dives right in you might say and and energizes that substance with the, the cosmic process a little bit so that if you intake it in, in a medicine or something your etheric body which is a, the process that creates your physical body really wakes up or your astral body really wake up to the presence of, shall we say the more process oriented substance in you. Does that make sense? I kind of said that funny. Yeah. No, that so that, that's the, so that's the argument anyway, that's the argument. So anyway, so these, these, uh, these plants then, uh, uh, the, this agricultural, that's one aspect of it. But then during the growth of the plant, so that would be your soil. You would always be working on your soil. And Steiner said, plants can't get sick. It's impossible for a plant to become ill. What, what happens when a plant sort of, well, to be honest, what happens is when a plant is getting sick then? Exactly. Is, is that the environment, the soil is, is, is incorrect. You, you work on the environment the plant is in. And once that environment has been healed, the plant's just what it is anyway. I mean, it's an interesting argument, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so he's, okay. uh, he's very much um, a terrain, not a germ guy then. It's possible we could say that. I don't know the <laughs> difference between those, but a holistic, definitely a holism, right? And deep ecology, right? That's just needs to happen there. So, so we have, we have the, the soil, but then during the times of the plants, there's places where um, the plant gets to a certain place where Steiner says it, 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 you can help it to read 
the cosmos. You can help it to sort of read the influences of the cosmos and take them in. (laughs) I think that's kind of how he said it. And so one of the things he did was he talked about uh, horns, the horns of animals, that these horns, if you look at the vortices of the, how the, the vortices have been used to create these horns, he says this very, very profound cosmic activity that has brought a horn into existence. And horns are the sense organ, a sense organ in cows and stuff like that. So they're never cut off uh, until a certain time on the farm because they're very, very important to the health of the cows. And so what they take, they would take these horns in the, in the uh, end of the summer and they would pack them with cow manure. Mm-hmm. And then they bury them in the ground for the whole winter. Wow. And, then, and they'll have a giant pile of these, hundreds of them. And they'll open that up at the end of the winter and they'll pull this out and they'll pour this stuff out, which is, I think it's called the 500 preparation. And it's magnificent hummus. And, and Cyrus says, you've got these cosmic forces from the heavens that are able to work through the magnificence of the substances of these horns and the, and the processes, you might say, that are incarnated in there to do something to this. And then you, you, you homeopathize that stuff in a certain way. It's more like a tea. And then you take that tea and then you spread that on the plants at a certain time. You spread a homeopathic silica at a certain time. You, you, you put a quartz at a certain time. And all these things help the plants stay connected to the cosmos. Now, that's organic, man. <laughs> you know, wow. they talk organic agriculture. I just laugh out loud. So what happens? Well, what, what did you get from this? So all the, you know, you have number, the number one, you've heard of it maybe in your, in England, but you know, you just go, just go across the pond there, you know, to, to central Europe and you've got the Demeter agricultural label. Hmm. You've heard of that? Demeter? No, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, just go over there. It's the, it's the premium produce of all of Europe and it's, biodynamic produce it's all biodynamic okay and then they and then you have the pharmaceutical companies that like Valeda and Dr. Hauschka and Uriel and all these uh and Vala which are all these massive pharmaceutical companies all helped into existence by Steiner that use biodynamic plants that are then Steiner gave the indications of how to preserve the etheric forces of these plants in medicines and all these kinds of things and uh Again, all coming back to what? The question in the car. What is the greatest hindrance to the spiritual development of our future? And Steiner says nutrition. So even there, he didn't just say it. He dived right in, right? Isn't that something? Mm. You know, it's just something to me that he, he, it puts him on a plane. I'm sorry, nobody touches him in terms of spiritual teachers because he didn't just talk about the ideas. He had, he had such a clarity in the highest, highest spiritual realms that he could take that and just bring it down into the physical world like nobody's business man and these people listen think about it all these haughty central european people you know with all their phds they listen to this guy he spoke with authority man he spoke with authority it's amazing when you think about it so I, I, this this was because because the spiritual nutrition is a, and spiritual recipes and this idea of food and in spirituality is a, is a real deep interest of mine and I'm trying to I'd love to create a spiritual cookbook with all these different recipes and trying to compile them but they are as you probably imagine uh, extremely difficult to find uh, I've probably only got five or six at the moment that that have their sort of a history to them but the, this this idea I mean is extremely key. Because, I mean, one thing I often tell people, you know, about the supplementation via supplements uh, in the West now, people say, well, you can get all that from your diet. And I say, well, actually, 
if you look at the 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 erosion and the the, the, the destruction of soils you realize that the nutrients is no longer in them at all. So you can't get it from your diet often, um, unless, of course, it's probably been truly, as you say, truly organically uh, farmed. But, I mean, is this a case, you know, you're speaking of uh, sort of farmer's old wisdom, of quite literally you are what you eat in the sense of your being, you know, your spiritual being is what you, you eat. I wouldn't want to black and white it quite that much, but I think I think you're really right. I think you're right, especially for us fledgling, uh, you know, waddling around here trying to take our first steps in spiritual development. We need all the help we can get, <laughs> you know. So, yes, the food, the, the food stuffs and, and you could say nutrients. You could think of the physical nutrients, but also, James, take into account that uh, it allows the etheric forces to remain healthy in the plants and what you really ingest is etheric forces that's what ultimately you you completely destroy the substances in your own organism and, and these etheric forces then draw from the environment around you what what your body needs it's really quite something with there's only one part of our body that really uses physical substances and that's the brain the rest of our body actually uses almost the substances as pointers to what it then draws through breath and through light and all these things from the environment. Very bizarre. I know that's very bizarre, but uh, he, he, he gets into that. Back to your, back to your point, though. Uh, yeah, so that those life forces are, are, are something that, how do we preserve those? Dr. Hauschka was very famous with that uh, based on uh, the questions he asked Steiner about it. So what, what, what is, what is life? And Steiner said, rhythm. Hmm. And so he would use these shape. They do this thing in a Hauschka thing. They'll shake in a, a lemniscate form, these substances in these bottles, and they'll do it for an hour or two hours. And it, it allows them to, uh, it creates a stability that lasts for a really long time. Really amazing stuff like that. You've heard of Dr. Hauschka products, right? Mm -hmm. I've heard the name. Yeah, I did. I didn't, yeah, I didn't understand he had the, uh, the yeah. connection. Though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely did. Yeah, very much so. He's got a book called The Nature of Substance, which is all about his experiences with Steiner and, and all the things that he did. And it's really quite a beautiful, profound book, really. So, mm -hmm. you know, we and again, all these things this guy did and nobody knows who Rudolf Steiner is. Mm -hmm. Isn't that blow your mind? And it's he's an embarrassment. He can't be real. And this is science talking now. This is science talking. Well, of course, he's not real. This is all hooliganism. This is all charlatanism because we know what's true. And that can't be it. <laughs> right. It's a fascinating dogma. We just don't realize how here's the here. You'll like this one. Let's try this out for a second so that. OK, so in every uh, in the evolution of consciousness throughout the cultures of the world, in every culture, they have had a direct knowing. And that direct knowing, you could say, is their science. Now, let's say at one time that direct knowing was the life of the elemental beings around them. Mm -hmm. And they did their farming and their understanding of that. Now, the other thing we didn't mention before I should throw in there is that in these uh, clairvoyant orientations of consciousness, the sense of self was far weaker than it is in us. OK, uh, what science, what, what the loss of them has done is isolated the individuality in us in our time. So we're very strong, central, egocentric creatures. And they were very much parts of tribes, right, and parts of groups of people that they, they felt far more their identity through others than through themselves. OK, that's an important distinction that there really was a positivity. Anytime something's gained, something is lost, right? Mm -hmm. Always, mm -hmm. right? No matter what. So, OK, so. 
they have a science and it's it's uh, it has to do with angels and archangels and elemental beings working in, so then what happens well their their consciousness continues to evolve and as it does it moves out of that realm and as it's moving out in the transition phases steiner talks about this they the loss of it of course is becoming noticeable so they codify it into myths sagas stories right traditions isn't that fascinating Mm -hmm. So when we look back at all of those things in, in like the sagas and myths of the, of the Norse gods and all these different gods, we're seeing sort of the tail end of a, a modality of consciousness that was absolutely direct and existential in all these people. I find that fascinating. I just wanted to throw that out. So here we are in ours. Ours right now is the science of this dead physical world that we absolutely think is the way it's always been. Everybody saw the world that way from the very beginning, right? That's the fallacy you might say we're at, we're struggling with now. And uh, someday, you know, it'll be interesting, you know, how that, that's already been codified, you might say, in the science. And science is fighting for its survival, maybe. And with spiritual science coming along and all these orientations and awarenesses of consciousness being something altogether other than what they say it is, that it's a spiritual activity in us. And it can grow and be changed by us now through our own efforts that, uh, it's interesting what it'll all be look like in a thousand years, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's 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 interesting you bring in this idea of uh, tribes and the collective, and obviously Steiner. Then his his big thing is is the you know the individual's place, the individual consciousness. Um, but it's interesting you you mentioned this idea with the tribes and the collectives, and the idea of their myths and their fables and their stories being codified, and and these texts that we are then given, uh, mythical texts, are primarily allegorical they're they're like a rich meal to be dug into you know full of nutrients that you really have to understand and you spend a lot of time with them and it's interesting that in the same way that you know the new the form of nutrients on the planet has mirrored this sort of dissension where we now have no actual nutrients in the soil and all these the the the, the foods as, as steiner said the foods we look upon are they'll look they look like foods but they're not really in the same way a lot of the stories that we're being told uh, uh, they don't have that same depth. They look like stories, but really they're just these surface level creations. And it seems, you know, maybe that's something we need to... It, it, I, I've thought this often, that it's quite ironic that really Steiner, Blavatsky, Gurdjieff, they seem to be the last myths of culture. You know, it's very mythical to, to look back on these people's lives because you think, well, how did they manage to do all this? And they're quite mythical figures. But since then, you know, it's been a, quite a, a death of the allegorical, the, the fables... Um, the idea of the parable, the idea of a deeper, a deeper reading to a story. I guess so. I mean, there's still some battles there. I mean, I, I don't know if it, right, because we sat, and I hate to bring it up, but we have all these movies and all these storytelling that goes on in movies, right, that draws mm. people into them. Now, it's a pretty sad comparison, I know, but I remember, I'll tell you one, one of the very few things that really sat me in my chair, so I had to wait for the show to come on a second time, I, and I used to do that as a kid, right? You'd say, stay in the theater and kind of hide and, and not have to pay twice mm. <laughs> and see the movie again. No, I didn't do that this time, but was the matrix mm. I mean, the matrix blew my mind i went now that that was the first time kind of a myth had been told again sadly in such a materialistic way of course you know that just was so revelatory in its own way right uh i'm, I'm digressing too far with that but i found that just gripping i mean wow they're telling a story there that does jar us you know out of uh, uh 
maybe our complacencies a little bit. Though I think people took it in a nutty way anyway, but but that's that's that. But okay, sorry about that digression. That wasn't worth anything. <laughs> no, no. But yes, I agree with you. I, I agree that the stories don't seem to have the same kind of thing. And at the same time, uh, imagination, right? Imagination isn't, you know, in, in Waldorf education, one of the things they're trying to do is preserve the imagination. Right. So that's why things are couched in story form so that the consciousness that the child's in at that time, which is natural to it at that time, and is living in pictures and living in kind of the morally saturated pictorial consciousness. And yet you want to teach the child. So you couch everything in these stories. And as they learn the stories, they also learn the, let's say, scientific facts at the same time. Interesting. Right. It's almost like the sagas of the past being used consciously now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, there's a guy named Owen Barfield. Did you ever read Owen Barfield? Great Brit. He's a great Brit. Uh, I've heard the name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he wrote a book called Saving the Appearances and also a wonderful book called Romanticism Comes of Age. And this this idea of. Uh, OK, that's maybe too far. Afield. And he's, he's a Brit and he was a he was a, one of the inklings with uh, Tolkien and uh, uh, Charles Williams and C.S. Lewis mm -hmm. and all these guys would they'd meet together and created the modern fantasy genre, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? The whole, I mean, George MacDonald was already dead, but you know, he, he was probably the grandfather of it all at the time. Right. But are any of these names familiar to yeah, you? Jo yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. Okay. Big, big fan of C.S. Lewis Tolkien. Um, I've yet yeah, to get yeah. around to MacDonald, but yeah. So, so go ahead. I mean, uh, Barfield is in there and he was a very close friend of Lewis and uh, he was a profound anthroposophist. Uh, very, very intense. All of his work, frankly, is anthroposophical, even though people think he's an original thinker. <laughs> mm. He's just a really, really good writer of, of Steiner's ideas, in my opinion, but I'll, I'll get in trouble for that. But he's very, he's very highly regarded, uh, Barfield is. And they had the arguments, he and C.S. Lewis, you know, with his Ulster Protestantism and stuff, right? So mm. it's, there's some, there's even letters. I have some letters between them. I don't know. I haven't read much of them. But um, why did I bring him up? Sorry, uh, rambled fa fa there. Fairy tales and yes, yes, allegory. and so all that. So, that, so we do have that side to this that we've sort of accidentally hit on a little bit of imagination, right? That kind of is trying to tell story still, trying to teach through myth and saga and story still in our time, right? I mean, Lord of the Rings, for heaven's sake, you know. I mean, that's a powerful allegory for the human, you know, for spiritual development. You could say, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if we've agreed with ourselves or contradicted ourselves. I think, so. no, ourselves I think it was just a nice digression <laughs> on allegory. Definitely. No, no. So, okay, well, one question, just jumping back to the nutrition, because it's a very practical thing. Uh -huh. I mean, when I when I got the book on nutrition, uh, I was a bit worried because I have a I have a diet which is uh, very high in meat. And uh, I realized Steiner said, well, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. It's not very spiritual. So I guess, you know, as Steiner is this very, very practical figure. I mean, what would the what what's the practical application of his understanding of nutrition and and agriculture in this sense? You know, what should we be aiming towards as spiritual beings? So. First of all, Steiner really never did say don't eat meat to oh, people in okay. to people in general, to people in general. But he said this, he said to and, and this was more in the esoteric lessons, right, that he gave to people that said we want to we want to aspire. We want to be your pupils and we want to aspire to spiritual development. He goes, OK, if you're going to aspire to spiritual development, then it is illogical to consume meat. 
Mm-hmm. And part and now this is an interesting argument. So he's saying that an animal raises these substances up. Okay, the, the plant has these substances at a certain level of being. The animal takes those and raises them up to another level of being. So that when the human being consumes the animal flesh, they are uh, they are then only then they only need to take that animal flesh up one level into the human level, mm-hmm. you might say, mm-hmm. right? And so it's easier to do. And in that sense, you're not using all the forces of your organism properly. If you have if you take the plant substance, you have to then raise it, let's say two stages. And and in that, the, the soul life is strengthened. Mm-hmm. And the, the abilities for concentration and all these things for spiritual development are maximized. But in a way, he says in a few places, almost dismissively, if you're not into spiritual development, it just doesn't matter. You're, you're having one of those lifetimes, you know, where you're just going along with the herd and you're still developing what you're developing in, in car, with karma and everything ruling in your life. Right. And you, it's still an unfolding and it's still gr- a growth. But you decided in this lifetime not to take on your own development consciously. Mm hmm. And if you did, you wouldn't need meat anymore. So it's interesting, right? He's never like that. He never tells people to do this or not to do that. It has to do with the logic of their intentions. Mm, I see. I see. What do you think? Yeah. Well, no, I, I think that's a common, you know, thread between a lot of spiritual teachers, okay. right? You know, okay. Gurdjieff and even Crowley, people will say their relationship with you was dependent on you know, if you said, uh, you know, I'm just looking into it, I'm just a sort of civilian, they, they just treat you like a normal person. But often, go. as soon as you said, no, I'd like to become one of your pupils, well, you've opened the, you've opened the floodgates, right, for a lot of, uh, a lot of flack, you know, a lot of pressure, a lot of everything. Yep. There you go. In a sense, yeah, yeah. It's different with Gurdjieff, I think, than Steiner. But yeah, I mean, who knows how it would have been standing in front of him when he was talking to you. So uh, yeah, so, yeah. He, you know, doesn't, I, he doesn't come across as a do, uh, a domineering uh, spiritual yeah. teacher in that way. Yeah, he really doesn't. Yeah, I mean, there were times that you listen to his uh, when he would be in the Waldorf. Uh, 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 teacher con uh, not uh, te- the teachers would meet there was a college of teachers generally that run a Walder school and not an administration the, the teachers do it together mm-hmm. and Steiner would be in there in, in the growth of the initial schools and you know he could be very direct let me tell you you know what I mean very very direct about things so <laughs> there's that side of him definitely he had to be right I mean in Central Europe with all these power you know imagine all so many PhDs in their fields in medicine and everything were drawn to Steiner so it's it's all about a very very strong uh, consciousness and uh, clarity that is going to be pretty direct at times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So one one so other this. aspect of his work that I did want to uh, I wanted to bring in because we didn't touch it last time. I mean we we touched a little bit on the Gothanium and the and the, the architecture there, but I also wanted to bring in some people actually know it's it's peculiar how people come across Steiner. Uh, and, and, and these figures, especially when they're very diverse, some people say, oh, yeah, I'm really, uh, I really like his artwork or I really like his drawings. It's peculiar that some people come via that angle. So, I mean, I just wanted to open up with that, 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 that as a question as well. Uh, you know, what, what role did art, art play for, for Steiner? Yeah, that's that's it's pretty it's pretty central uh, to like education, right? Education stayed in the realm of art. Well, what's happening? This is kind of fun. You think about what happens. Let's say I got a piece of clay in front of me, mm-hmm. okay, and I stare at that clay, and I have an imagination in my mind of what I want that clay to become, mm-hmm. okay. And so my I, my hand, 
I raise my hand, my thumb, I have my thumb, and I press my thumb into the clay. And I pull my thumb back and I look at what I did. And I look again at the imagination of what I want to bring into being. And I return back again to the object and I do the next action. And then the, you see how, how exquisite that is as a form of meditation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Okay, for example, right? So if you could do that in our, in an educational setting where all almost as much as possible, you're allowing the freedom in that child or whatever to have that kind of experience, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's spiritual in the highest sense, right? So there's that side to it. Um, so art was everywhere, kind of all the time with him in speech. So he did this thing where he taught uh, what's called Sprachgestaltung, which is a form of artistic speech. And, you know, you, you, you do a, probably a three or four year study to do that right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then how about his visible movement and uh, visible speech called Eurythmy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. No. Okay. So you might want to look that up. Uh, and there's a, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, videos, you know, on YouTube on Eurythmy, E-U-R-Y-T-H-M-Y. And, Steiner there is talking about how a clairvoyant sees the creation of speech and what it looks like to a clairvoyant and how we can take that, uh, that picture and bring it into human movement and, 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 and uh, manifest speech visibly for people to see. It's really, really something to see. And that's a very rigorous four-year training to become a eurythmist very serious thing but it's also in music too so our body has fourths and fifths and seconds in the organism in your hands and in your arms and all this stuff all this uh microcos- you know microcosmic manifestation of the, the 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 music of the spheres you might say lives in the human being and that's also so there's visible music too so to, to see a, a beethoven symphony being done with 50 eurythmists on the stage and they're wearing these different silk flowing things for the for the majors and the minors and the uh and the timbres of the instruments and they're moving back and forth and through each other and not running into each other you know and and the whole thing is a visible picture of a beethoven symphony wow Okay, so this is another thing Steiner did, which is a lot of people really find themselves into anthroposophy once they see eurythmists. It's just astonishing, really, to see. And, and I, I, you know, you can, in a Waldorf school, every Waldorf school, if it's a Waldorf school and hasn't become something else over time, which they can do, has a eurythmy teacher. And they, they have a eurythmy class every day. And they do eurythmy. And, they, and it's an incredibly taxing, demanding thing. You wouldn't believe it. Okay, but it's also stunning. So when I would go as an adult to eurythmic classes on Saturdays or whatever you could take, I was so tantalized because they would be doing something and saying something and you're going, yeah, that, that is what you're saying. The word you're saying or the vowel you're saying or whatever. Yeah. What you just did. Yeah. That, that is that, but I, I don't, I don't have it all in my head. I don't, you know, you're just tantalized because you're, you're seeing like half of something and you know, it's right, but you don't see the other half. And it's just absolutely something to see. I mean, there you see kind of a spirituality coming out of Steiner in that art form. That's a staggering. Yeah, it's just staggering mm-hmm. to me. Sorry, I'm going. I'm getting. I'm getting sycophantic here in a little, a little bit. But so here, here's a fun one. Okay, so Steiner's talking about the arts. Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. see if we've got enough of this. So he says, when you look at sculpt, when you look at architecture, 
architecture really comes out of the human being just experiencing the, the, the physical forces in their organism. Mm -hmm. And that, that experience really brought forth, you might say, uh, the, the manifestation of, of uh, architectures and art. If you look at sculpture, in sculpture, you're seeing the etheric body, which is our sculptor of our physical body, right? You're, if, if, a, if a clairvoyant, I'm going to say it kind of this way, though I don't remember exactly if Steiner would say it this way. If you were to see somebody doing sculpture, he says you would see their, the person, you, clairvoyantly, you would see their etheric body pressing into their physical body as they're doing sculpture. Mm. Okay. Then he says, so now if you see somebody painting, if you and they're all the, with color and all this, if you see that, clairvoyant would see that person's astral body pressing into their etheric body. Mm. And now you see somebody making music and doing music and writing music. He said, you would see the person's ego being pressing into their astral body. And then if you heard, saw somebody writing poetry and true, true poetry, I don't know how much of that is actually around anymore, but <laughs> okay. But true poetry, you see, you would see their next higher member, which is not quite here yet called the spirit self, which is this transformed astrality that we're working on right now as human beings, the spirit self, this echo of the spirit self in the human being pressing into their ego. And, the, and we'd have to talk about maybe give some characterizations of what spirit self means. But uh, and then finally, let's say finally, for now, uh, when you see Eurythmy, you would see the higher member of the, this transformed etheric body called the spirit self. Sorry, the life spirit pressing into the spirit self. Those are very abstract up there. But so e so even this art form is kind of something that came from uh you know, seeing these things. And then there's an, a higher one than that. He calls the coming social art, whatever that is. That is the uh, higher, the spirit human being pressing into the life spirit. Sorry that I know that might be abstract for people, but if they look Steiner up, it's a very, very cool thing that when you hear those, James, they're just sense, they just make sense. They're just shockingly elegant ways of seeing the human beings, members, and their interaction with each other in the manifestation of all these arts. Mm, mm. So, hmm, I mean, it seems it seems to be. I'm, I guess I'm slowly realizing over this conversation that I'm a bit more of a pessimist. I guess uh, in terms of what's happened to these things. I mean, once again, art, art, art in this sense, ironically, has become almost like other things, just about the surface. And I think, um, absolutely, yeah. I wonder what's absolutely. wonder what's removed when you you don't have that deeper understanding of you know, as you say, different bodies pressing into each other as something. Uh, developing underneath you know what what does art become as you said the idea of true poetry we sort of we can somehow discern between true and insincere poetry and maybe that's what happens is you you end up with something where you intuitively know yeah that's technically art but it doesn't quite make the leap yeah i think that's just our materialistic age i think that materialism is inartistic <laughs> at, at its bottom. Yeah, I just, it just is. I mean, it, we are in the great darkness. We just are. I mean, otherwise we just wouldn't feel so strongly about people like Steiner when they come that there's just the other half of the world is being presented to us. Can we truly integrate it? Not just believe in it as a belief system. Bah, who needs that? You know, I need existential experience of this in my, I need to be healed. 
by a knowing, right? That's deeper than the knowing I'm taught to know in schools and stuff, right? Mm. Cramming with a text in front of me. <laughs> you know, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Even though that's all we've got right mm. now, right? Mm. Dale talked. You called, <laughs> you called it the uh, you called it the great the great darkness. Is that a, a Steiner name? It is not. No, it's oh, okay. not. That's that's. I mean, I you know, in some ways, that the fall is 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 turning, and he's he really is optimistic about that at bottom. At the same time, that he's not uh, looking through rose colored glasses. You know what I mean? And that's the difference in Steiner with a lot of people is that, you know, there's there's heavy stories in there, right? I mean, they're they're pretty heavy. You know, the, the picture of Araman, if Araman really just takes over and we dismiss the Christ and, and even Lucifer and just let Araman run rampant, I mean, we're pretty much in that modality right now. What are we going to do with that? It's, you know, he wants to you know, just turn the whole thing into a, a closed off system of the earth that has nothing to do with the rest of the cosmos anymore at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, one, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, one, one, a... one question I have just coming from from you know, as you know, I'm fond of Gurdjieff. Yeah, I mean, he's very um, he's very deterministic about things. For Steiner, you know, just to I mean, this is quite a rough way of putting it, but for Steiner, can anyone make it? You know, could anyone do this stuff that he's talking about, or is it is it in any way select? You know, so that's a paradox for me because I, I I like universalism and I think he does say that, you know, as opposed to many other things in the world where talent and all these other things are, are part of it, he says anyone can begin the journeys on a, in spiritual development, right? That that's that, you know, unless there's massive brain damage or something, obviously. But so there's that. But then he also does paint a picture of some part of humanity that is going to fall away. It's going to fall away with a sort of a, uh, a, a, a an earth that is sort of a leftover crust thing that, that can't be incorporated back into the spiritual world. So right between every planetary incarnation we've had, starting with old Saturn, after old Saturn went through its uh, evolution, it, it, it disappeared into kind of a spiritual world that Steiner couldn't see. He calls it the pralaya right? And that's an old Hindu term, right? Where it goes completely into pure spirituality, and then it reconstitutes itself in a, re, in a form that recapitulates old Saturn, and then moves further in its evolution. That was called old sun. And that, who, who, who knows how many millions or billions or trillions of years, because, you know, it's a different kind of time thing. Then that reached its evolutionary end, and then dissipated in the in a way that became purely spiritual. Steiner couldn't perceive it anymore, so he calls it the pralaya. And then it and then it reemerges into existence again as old moon and recapitulates both old Saturn and old sun before it then continues its evolution. Then it goes through a, a, a process of completion, and there is this pralaya. And after that, then the earth evolution proper that we're in right now begins. And at the beginning of that, it recapitulates old Saturn, old sun, old moon, and kind of only with a certain period called the Lemurian period did earth evolution itself begin. And that's when the Elohim or the Exousiae in the middle of uh, the Lemurian period, at the time the moon was being extricated from the earth, uh, brought individualized egos into into uh, the physical plane, 
and reincarnation began. Whoa. And, and only since then have we been reincarnating and, 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 and you know, what's the right word? And, and growing our egos, becoming beings of self, uh, you know, and, and, what, and what is the goal of that? The goal of that is selflessness, <laughs> but not a selflessness where you've given up what you have, but a selflessness that is willed mm. out of a true self, like the Christ. The Christ is the perfect self. He's the most complete, total self that's ever existed. And what was his greatest act? Selflessness. Mm -hmm. So that's cool to me. That's, a, that's very different from kind of the Eastern, my understanding of Eastern orientations, right? Even though after Mahayanic Buddhism, I think it becomes very similar to Christianity, which, by the way, came into existence 100 years after the event of Christ. Mm -hmm. so why, so, was, why, was, yeah. why was the option for an ego put in? In this Lemur Lemurian time period, in the first place, you know, why why was that option founded within the universe? Uh, I, well, it was okay. So I mean, we, okay. So first of all, we needed an, a physical body for it to occur in, and that was prepared in its first incarnation on old Saturn. And we needed an etheric body. Its first incarnation was on old Sun, and we needed an astral body. And its first incarnation was in. Uh, old moon. So by the time you got to Lemuria, these these bodies had been uh, brought to enough of a completion that an ego could find a relationship of the beginning, right, of a relationship to them. It was still really outside them, but it was connected to them. So it right. So what's happening? So you're asking a bigger question than that, right? You're saying, mm -hmm. well, what is what is the reason for this thing called ego beings to even exist at all in the cosmos. Is that kind of what you're yeah, asking? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Say. Okay. Yeah. No, no, no. Right. And that is, uh, again, it, you could say this, right? Humanity, Steiner says this, humanity is the religion of the gods. Wow. So they are out there, you might say, on the periphery, pouring their forces, their qualities into us, in a way where we're we stay free unless they're backward beings like luciferic and harmonic beings we're trying to get in there and take you know and grab hold of us through temptation and all that stuff right and the, and what's happening is that another hierarchy of beings is being brought into the relationship of the of the cosmos the, the real cosmos the not the dead one our eyes see but the one filled with life and filled with consciousness all the way up to the farthest stars Every star is a colony of spiritual beings, Steiner says, right? For instance, right? We only see this dead physical part of them that's shining at us. <laughs> and uh, we know what they are, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But so, so okay, that's, and, I, and we're getting into kind of a maybe woo-woo land for people, <laughs> right? Okay, but but we have this, this happened. So, so in Old Moon, the, the angels went through their human stage. They were human, whatever that word exactly means, right? where an ego nature found its relationship to them, even though they're one with the cosmos in a way that's way beyond us. And before them, the archangels on old sun went through a human stage. And on old Saturn, the very first one, when time came into existence, was during that, that period, is when the archai beings went through their human stage. So meanwhile, they all became hierarchies of beings that are now mothering us into existence is my kind of way of saying this, which isn't not Steiner, but you know, I'm, I'm an awkward guy. So I'm doing my best on that. 
And then there, and this evolutionary chain of being, right, that goes all the way up to the seraphim and the cherubim and the thrones, and then above and beyond them, the, the Trinity, that is, you know, it's this wondrous story that Steiner shares in so many of his lecture cycles. It's just, you've got to be kidding me. Mm. <laughs> and yet it's not Xena and these D9 planes uh, landing people in volcanoes like on Scientology. I mean, uh, that's just some sad pictures, man. But this is a, this is very gorgeous and it's very spiritual. It's not rarefied, you know, like the, the real danger is spiritual materialism, right? Where we just take the materialistic pictures we have and just make them thinner <laughs> and transplant them into something we then call spiritual. That's a, that's not, not healthy. Mm. So I'm rambling a little, sorry. No, no, not at all, not at all. So these other beings that you, you mentioned that they were mothering us into existence. Do we have a duty to mother anything, to mother anything else into existence for Steiner? Well, it will be. That he does say that, you know, the, what happens with these beings is they end up getting to a point in their development where they, they can give birth to a cosmos. So our cosmos was given birth to in old Saturn by a, a hierarchy of beings in the highest hierarchy called the thrones. And the thrones, which is, these are Dionysius, the Areopagites, uh, uh, Christian terminology that he uses for the hierarchies. But you could talk about the Amshas Pans and, and all these other beings and all you know, and Zarathustrianism and stuff that are there too. And they're, they're part of this whole picture. They're the same thing, just from a different point of view. But they, he, you know, he talks about uh, in, in Occult Science, that book, An Outline of Occult Science or An Outline of Esoteric Science, he talks about how the beginnings of all this happened, how they began the creation of a universe. And eventually other beings will do that. And eventually in a far, 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 far future, that would be something that we would ultimately do as a hierarchy of beings in our development is we would birth a cosmos. Wow. And again, well, is it over then, Dale? You see what I mean? You know, we, we, <laughs> yeah. all, we all want to have in our linear sequential modality of consciousness a beginning and an end to things. And, and, and it just sounds like, you know, Dale, you're just kind of fobbing off the answer <laughs> with <laughs> another cycle of evolution all the time. And you know what? It, it sounds like that in how we understand the world. It doesn't have an ending or a beginning like you and I want it to have, you might say. It, even like when we look at plants, you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's so interesting. That seed is the deadest part, <laughs> you know? And yet once it, it unites with the environment, right? Heaven, it, heavens, look what we get, you know? It's just amazing. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So that should be, that should, I mean, it, in the in the the great grand scheme of things then you know this birth and death of cosmoses and this continual evolution it's it's almost hard to find the the place of the individuals or human you know what, what what is to be done for the individual person who wants to push themselves to grow to evolve in relation to that you know that massive cosmological thing that's going on yeah i don't i, I t t say more well, you know, I just, as you said, you know, you were saying that people might joke about um, and say, oh, you're, you're fobbing it off with another. Oh, and then then there's this next cycle. Then there's this next cycle. And I think for the individual, you know, for the individual ego who's seeking to, you know, quote unquote, become enlightened or, or, or evolve their, their spirituality to, be, to grow in some sense. It's easy to get lost in those bigger pictures of things. And, you know, it's almost like what's the first step? You know, what's the first thing to realize to get yourself sort of imbued with that sight that could see the world in this way 
Yeah, and for me, that would be uh, whatever uh, tradition or path you find that you, you begin with study. Is that too small an answer? I mean, you just have to begin by finding an orientation. You know, we're, we have the orientation that science and our culture has given us. And the, the sense of self is pretty small, right? In that, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the cosmos, okay, so good, this is good. Let's throw this out. So, so what, did we talk about what happens when a person falls asleep? I don't think so. So here you've got your physical body and your etheric body and your astral body and your ego. Okay. So the problem is, is that consciousness to manifest on the physical plane, the astral body and the ego for, for those are, let's say our consciousness bodies for consciousness to manifest on the physical plane. It has to destroy. It has to, it has to destroy life. So consciousness enters into our etheric body and it actually, creates like a, a void in an, an area there in which it we wake up and during the time we're awake our our physical body and our etheric body are really undergoing a lot of damage because we're awake in them <laughs> is that a new one for you yeah i mean yeah yeah, yeah okay so when you fall asleep a, literally a clairvoyant watches you fall asleep your astral body and your ego separate. That is called sleep, by the way. I have no other understanding of sleep than that after 40 years of thinking about this, right? And what then happens is all of a sudden your etheric body centers, you can almost see plant-like forms just flower in it as when it's free of the presence of consciousness, it goes in and, and, and rebuilds as much of the damage that was done while consciousness was there that it can. Okay, okay, so you need, okay. so you need sleep in this profound sense but then on the other side of that the ego and the astral body then they expand out as they expand out let's say as far as the moon so you're as large as with the earth at the center by the way which is still a valid paradigm in anthroposophy not the sun at the center but the earth at the center and the planets creating uh, uh, around us creating spheres around the earth okay Mm -hmm. We, that, that's not wrong. It's just that it, it got lost from science saying that's stupid. We, get, we can do better math with the sun at the center. But there's, there's the spirit, the humanism of Steiner. We haven't talked about his humanism yet, but that's, that's Steiner's humanism. Okay, so I'm digressing. So, and what happens is that we take all the deeds of the waking state we just lived through. You know, we just woke up and we, we, we lived that day awake and then we fell asleep again. Well, what we did during that time, in every thinking action, and in every feeling action, James, and in every act of will, we created moral substance. Mm-hmm. In, in, in the smallest existential moment you can imagine. Every moment we're doing this, okay? And we take that, uh, the astral world, and that's our astral substance. We take that astral substance. And Snyder used, I think he used a phrase in one of the early books where we're actually weaving this tapestry of moral quintessence that we, that we take from that. that that's kind of why the ego and the astral body dive down into there and live, on the, on the, you know, live, live in the world kind of thing. It's right? for this moral agency to uh, grow through its mistakes and everything else and, and experience its karma from past lives and everything. And, then, and, then, and also, given the nature of your consciousness, you also absorb renewed moral forces from the cosmos. They feed you every day. 
But Steiner says, if humanity cannot find a relationship to the higher beings, especially Christ, over time, we'll sort of encrust our soul so that these, these higher beings that want to infuse us with, reviv uh, with vivifying spiritual forces for our next day awake in consciousness, that, that, will get, that, that that's, that's in danger. Okay, and we'll lose our sense of morality slowly, little bit by little bit. Our sense of right will get will get injured because of a. Uh, I would say this just because of the gruesome materialism of our modern science, but it could be other reasons too. Just dark magic that you get into, whatever. So, so, so here we have this thing going. Okay, so now, when you die. Well, what happens then? Well, it's kind of obvious. I mean, again, these things become common sense. When you die, your etheric body, which is tenaciously attached to your physical body, separates from it. And now it, those 330 billion cells a day that your body is casting off, it continues to do. But there's no etheric body there to replace them anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're just doing your body just does what it's been doing every day since the day you were born. It's just that your life body is. But, but what happens is because the etheric body is not uh, tied to the physical body anymore, it turns, you might say, and pours all its forces into your consciousness. And when those forces pour into your consciousness, they appear there as your life flashing before your eyes. And you get this panorama, it takes about three days to process and experience it as you begin your excarnation process out of the, out of your, uh, um, physical life you just had right and you, your life passes before your eyes for about three days so we have wakes right the old wakes from the religion where it was a deep wisdom that they still knew there's a time to let the body be at rest there's a time for the body to be held in quiet and and to be cocooned by our concerns so that the the excarnating person can have this panorama can can brood inside this panorama of the existence it just had from the moment it died till the moment it was born. And I mean, vivifying details. Steiner says it's hundreds of times more intense than any of the actual experiences you had while you were alive because your physical body sort of buffers the intensity of it. But now it's just intense. Okay. So then, okay. So then by then your ego has expanded out and you are as large as the moon sphere around the earth. You were saying how big or how small we are. I'm giving you a picture of how big we are now. I'm actually on the subject, okay? Mm -hmm. So then during this time, you now go to that tapestry I mentioned that your astral body had been building during the whole time you were alive. Well, you're 60 and you die. James, how long did you lay in the bed and sleep if you're 60 when you die? Uh, for about, well, for a third of it, 20 years. Yeah, just say that out loud again. Yeah, 20 years. <laughs> right? Yeah. 20 years. Okay. Oh, what a waste of time. Let's make some amphetamine drugs and keep these suckers awake all the time, man. <laughs> you know, that's science, right? Mm. Yeah, oh, we're wasting a whole third of my life. No. Right. So what happens now, he says, Steiner says, is you enter into this, this, uh, this, uh, what he calls Kamaloka using the ancient uh, Hindu word, I believe it is. And from the moment you died, you now go back through that life. And again, it takes about a third of the time to, that you lived your life, obviously, because, you know, that's the 20 years of your life, you were creating this tapestry. And instead of experiencing your deed, your thinking moment, your feeling moment, your willing moment, you experience its effect on the other person. And you experience it totally intensely. 
okay? And again, this is part of this excarnation process to go from a myopic ego-centered being to a being that's part of the hierarchies of the world, spiritual beings that are going to help us now uh, on our journey. We have to kind of extricate ourselves from our own myopic orientation, right? Which we needed while we were on the earth or we wouldn't have survived. So you go through that life. And after that, then you expand out to what he calls the Mercury sphere, which is the planet Venus. And there's a, a reason for that. And then you're now involved with the hierarchy of beings that are related to, to Mercury. And they help now, uh, and Steiner gives these magnificent lectures on this called Between Death and Rebirth, okay, that you just have to read. I'm, there's no way I can do justice to them. And, and then you go, you go out all the way to Venus, which is the closest to the sun we call Mercury. And then finally, you abide for three times as long in the sun sphere itself. Then you go to the Mars sphere. Then you go to the uh, uh, Jupiter sphere and the Saturn sphere. And then when you get to there, he says, you come to a place, you're that big. Okay, you as a being are that large. And it depends on your spiritual development that you acquired on the earth, how awake you are by now, in a certain sense, right? This is all about spiritual development. The very developed are awake then. Let's say Steiner would probably be awake all the way out to the, to the uh, uh, Saturn sphere. You get to a kind of the cosmic midnight hour of existence, he calls it. In, he, in the, his mystery plays, I don't know if you know that Steiner wrote four mystery dramas that are done at the Gertianum and take about 25 hours to do the four plays. <laughs> wow. Doesn't oh, he, by the way, surprise me. He, oh, he did that when just, you know, when he wasn't doing anything else, by the way. Right? <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. 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 So, so anyway, there's this moment that comes where you kind of are allowed a decision. Now, I think he says that sort of to try to communicate it, but I don't know how real that decision is. It depends how awake you are, where you can stay in the spiritual world if you want to. But if you do, you'll forever be a cripple there. And instead, the picture of the Christ sort of rises in front of you. And the Christ is this picture of the complete human being. Okay. And I guess, no, and it has nothing to do with religion. It has to do with this, what the Christ being was after its incarnation in the physical, etheric, and astral bodies of Jesus of Nazareth and took those up and then completely evolved them to the end of time so that the Christ being stands as the first totally, completely evolved human being at the end of everything we've been talking about, okay, that ready to birth a cosmos <laughs> kind of being, right? Okay, maybe, maybe not that far yet, who knows? Okay, so then, and then what, normally happens is that the the this this outward expanding orientation becomes a contracting uh compressing orientation and a desire to take the karma and take the fruits of other lifetimes and live another lifetime on the earth and then you've been going back through the spheres until you finally get to the earth so that's how big you are whoa now that's different, isn't it? I don't think that's nutsy. You know, I mean, you and I can have pictures of that in our mind's eye. And you know what? It, see, and think of it. What is the exact opposite picture we're given from science? That you're a meaningless speck mm. on a meaningless speck of earth in an empty space all around you. Mm. That's the other side of the story. And that's not false. You see, there's, it's so fascinating because we do have to separate ourselves from the higher beings for this gall darn evolution to continue, you know? And I just really would rather have them around. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah.
<laughs> you know, I mean, that's maybe what's at the bottom of us all kind of feeling our way back to spiritual world, you know, spiritual development and, so, and, and being dissatisfied. But it's all, yeah, there's crises and everything else. Anyway, I just was very great. And this is, again, uh, an outline of esoteric science and then filled in by many, many cycles that he gave about uh, life between death and rebirth. Wow. I very mean, concrete. Very yeah. concrete. There's nothing I can really add to follow that up because it was th – that is, as you say, something that people are probably going to go have to read because it's extremely – uh, intense indeed. and deep. I did a, I did a very burning. poor job. I did a very poor job. No doubt about it. Okay. Cause I read that stuff over and over again. I have them in my car. I listen to them. I'm like, wow. I mean, who was this guy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's fascinating. Maybe, okay. That, that's a, maybe a, a question to wrap up in a way, because I, I'm, I'm always interested in this sort of question with these people. I mean, so, um, for instance, you know, I'll bring in my old favorite KGF again. There is people who sort of say, look, when you read certain biographical accounts of him, people say, to be honest, he, it was like being with someone who wasn't really human, not in an inhuman way, but someone, you know, you, you could never say this person was human, and which really leads to that understanding of why none of his followers ever really got to his level, because you think, actually, maybe it's because he was something else. And I feel the same way about Steiner, because, you know, you look, you look at Steiner's work, and his output, and you think, you know, and, and this question I brought in last time of, well, when did he have the time, one, to write it all, two, to read enough to, uh, to, to, to know all that, and three, then to synthesize it on top of everything else that he's doing. And you, I think the only conclusion you can come to is that, that there's another element at play. So an you know, open-ended question, but who do you think Steiner was? So let's go to, first of all, a couple of things you mentioned. One is reading, right? So there's reading books and then there's reading the Akasha Chronicle, right? You've heard of that? No. no. Oh, we didn't touch on that then. Okay. No, so, so as part of uh, your spiritual development and my spiritual development, there comes a time when we transcend our own private life of memory and we begin to access a memory life that another living being has. And that other living being is the earth. The earth has a living memory, like, like having an etheric body with all those living memories I told you about. And when initiates get as high as Steiner, they're able to access that, that, uh, that living memory of the earth. Now, the earth is intimately connected to humanity, and we haven't really talked about that. But it's for us. It was us. The whole earth is like something we cast off until we could find a form that the ego could live in. And that happened in the Lemurian time we talked about earlier. During all that time, humanity was, nope, we can't incarnate yet because we've got the animal realm. Okay, move them out. No, we can't, we can't uh, incarnate the ego because we've still got the plant realm. Okay, move that out. Isn't that wild? Mm -hmm. And then eventually these things became external to us and the form and function of whatever was there didn't look like us now, but it was enough for the ego to begin its incarnational activity, okay, that given by these higher beings. So um, why did I bring that up? Uh, okay, so we're talking about who Steiner was mm -hmm. and who these, who these guys are, right, in general. Um, so... We have this being uh, who was, the base, you could say, was the greatest initiate in the world 
up to that time, and that was Zarathustra, which is probably the oldest religion. Zarathustrianism is probably the oldest of all religions, six, 7,000 BC or whatever is when it started, way before all these other ones, right? Mm -hmm. And this being, uh, Zarathustra then, he was so advanced that when he died, his etheric body didn't disintegrate into the cosmic ether as yours will and as, as mine will, let's say. It, it was preserved in the Earth sphere. And his astral body as well was preserved in the Earth sphere. And these then were used by people in the, later in history. So his etheric body became the etheric body of Moses. And it had all these incredible knowledge and the stories of Genesis living in it. Okay, and these poured out of his etheric body through Moses's stories, right? We get Genesis. And the Hermes Thoth, the founder of uh, Egypt, had the astral body of Zarathustra. Okay, so these things are going on here. Just to kind of give you these pictures, so there's a set of lectures given in 1909, I believe, by Steiner called uh, the, uh, the Principles of Spiritual Economy. And it talks about in the many initiates that they're so advanced that their bodies don't uh, uh, disintegrate, their physical does obviously, but their other ones don't. And they're, they're actually ended up uh, influencing the evolution of humanity and cultures and stuff through time. Very fascinating, a beautiful set. I think they were rather cryptically recorded though. So they're not as, as stenographically rich as they normally are. So you get this picture of esoteric history. So here's Steiner reading, <laughs> okay? So he wants to, he wants to talk about Aristotle. So he actually can meet the astral after image is my way of putting it of Aristotle in the, in the memory life of the earth mm -hmm. and ask him questions and get answers that Aristotle would give or that Goethe would give or that all these beings would give. So that's kind of how Steiner read. Uh, I see. Okay. So he, so his learning curve is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? But he did also have a, a library of 9,000 volumes in his own private library, which is at the Gertianum. Now, the point being is that Steiner being this practical man, richly enculturated by his own society, and in 19, you know, the 19, 1870 to 1910 in Europe was one of the highest points of uh, culture in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. yeah, just think about it for a while. It was staggering what went on there mm -hmm. in science and philosophy and music. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Okay. And Steiner grew up in that. So he, but here he is, as he says, he gets all this direct knowledge from the spiritual world, but he wants to integrate it into the uh, stream of understanding of his fellow human beings who don't have that access. And so he studied books but not to learn from them, but to find modes of expression and, 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 and things, you, you, you know what I'm saying? So he could integrate the two together and be a better communicator. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. So he would say, you know, look, you can, you can actually learn the entire thing of geometry. And then all of a sudden, one day you open up a book and go, Oh, wow, this guy did this, this Euclid guy. I'll be darned. He found everything I did. Hmm. So that's what Steiner did with the Bible. Mm-hmm. So Steiner found, you might say, everything that's in the Bible. Then he opened up the Bible and went, oh, that's how they say that here. Interesting. Well, nobody's going to know that. Nobody's going to know that's what that means unless they've seen it directly. And that's an excitement to read Steiner's, uh, all of his lecture cycles on the Gospels, by the way. Have you ever read any of them? Uh, yeah, we recently did a, uh, another little episode on Steiner with a, uh, a guy, Aaron French. We did, we did specifically his Christology. It, it, that's cool, isn't it? I mean, and he's and so he's always coming at them from 
yeah, I already know this. And this is how the Bible says it. Let's talk about that. And I, I love that. It's just it's flabbergasting, right? I mean, obviously, people are going to get pretty upset. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, okay, I, and I'm kind of hedging the situation. So, so, you know, obviously, Steiner was an initiate of some kind. And, and in this particular lifetime that he had, uh, he was called upon to, in a certain way, sacrifice his own development and become a public figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and take all that's going to be taken on when that happens, all the vilification, all the attacks, the burning of the first Gertianum by arson. His, his life in 1922 and 23 being uh, attempted to kill him through the brown shirts in Germany so that he could never go back to Germany again. Hmm. Okay, there's an enormous amount of stuff around him that was attacking him. But, you know, he took this on as, as a mission through his masters that had initiated him. Now, he, now an occultist will never... If there are healthy occultists that simply will never discuss this on a, a public level, they may discuss it in private conversations with people. And that's sort of where we get some of this information, okay, mm-hmm. is, is through only through private r- things that he said to other people that, in fact, we found out about after those people died and we studied their letters and, and, and artifacts that they left behind them after they died. That's how everything I'm really going to tell you right now in a certain sense, comes from, okay? okay? Steiner himself would never stand there and tell you I was this person. The minute anybody says that, walk away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just walk away. Because they've just taken your freedom away from you. Mm-hmm. That's a way to say it, right? I am so great that you have to listen and believe everything I say to you. That's mm-hmm. sort of what's behind all that ugliness. Yeah. But, okay, so, but at the same time, there was a time that came in the evolution of the anthroposophical society, James, when uh, it reached a critical point. Steiner was never a member of the anthroposophical society. He was a teacher of the anthroposophical movement. And parallel to that, a bureaucratic administrative structure came into existence called the anthroposophical society. Mm-hmm. And that's where he would go. They, those were his people. That's where he would go to give them talks and, and everything and show them eurythmy and architecture and everything. But he was the teacher of the movement of anthroposophy. And that had to be. He said that's true of every teacher will do that because they won't take on that external exoteric aspect. It, it, it uh, depletes their energies and uh, weakens their clairvoyance, their, their research, their spiritual research. I believe he says it that way. Mm-hmm. So, but then there was a crisis after the burning of the Gertianum in 1922-23 on New Year's Eve. So it burned from 1922 to 1923, <laughs> you might say. Ah, okay. So a year later, he decides that he is going to take on the presidency of the Anthroposophical Society and be both the president of the society and also the teacher of the movement still. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... He was very worried when he'd made that decision. He did not know if the higher worlds were going to let that happen or if he was, was going to sort of be wounded in his ability to do spiritual research. And after he did it, he was very relieved and happy to share with everyone that no, in fact, the exact opposite has happened. The worlds have even opened up more intensely than they even did before for me. And I'm able to see even more clearly and do my research more efficaciously now. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So during that time, before the, the Christmas conferences, it was called sometime around 
December 24 of 1923 to January 6th of 1924, he gave a couple cycles of lectures that were very interesting when you look back on them. And what he was doing there is he was kind of in a third person way describing the spiritual stream from its beginnings all the way back in the time of the Epic of Gilgamesh, the spiritual stream that had come to its uh, eventual flowering in the anthroposophical movement. Okay? Mm -hmm. and, he talk, and he talks about um, Iabani and Enkidu, or, you know, that's the same person, that's two different ways of saying the same name, and Gilgamesh and the relationship they had. And then later on, he talks about Cratylus and Plato, and then Plato and Aristotle, and their relationship. And then he talks about Thomas Aquinas, and, their, and his relationship with a certain person. And all through this thing, it's very interesting, right? Hmm. And then later on, you get the impression that these were reincarnations of Rudolf Steiner. Hmm. But again, it's never, you know, and, and part of it was, there was a woman named Ida Wegman who was a um, what would you say of her? Uh, just powerhouse medical doctor that she and Steiner very worked very much together in medicine. We haven't talked about medicine, <laughs> but you know, there's thousands of doctors around the world that practice anthroposophical medicine. They become doctors of medicine and they take two years of extended study to become anthroposophical doctors. Uh. And that's a very cool thing. So anyway, and this Ida Wegman, he and Ida Wegman then Supposedly, it appears he gave her these kind of cryptic verses. I stand at Tigris and you are blah, blah, blah. And I stand at da, 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 and you are da, da, da. And, and they're just very cryptic and people have deciphered them. There's a book called Rudolf Steiner's Mission and Ita Wegman, W-E-G-M-A-N, which is sort of this esoteric study uh, taking these fragments that they found and reworking the reincarnations of Rudolf Steiner as uh, Enkidu or Iabani as uh, Aristotle as, and these are the only ones that he mentions in here, there's probably were other ones, as St. Thomas Aquinas and then as Rudolf Steiner. Okay, so you could take or leave that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Okay, but then in this lifetime, he met, when he was young, he met a, a herb gatherer named Felix Kogutsky, who we think was probably a master though we don't know you know there's no he never other than the, uh, appreciating the man so much in his autobiography uh steiner's autobiography where by the way he just talks about everybody else he doesn't talk about himself hardly at all <laughs> it's really a, an amazing thing to read uh who was then int introduced to his real master or another master by this kogutsky guy who a lot of people feel was probably uh the reincarnation of christian rosenkreutz Mm -hmm. And Rosenkreutz is the reincarnation <laughs> of, of St. John of the Book of the Revelation, okay. who went through many, 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 many reincarnations. About once every hundred years, he was born, okay, and was the first, uh, mo uh, the first in the modern times of Christ was initiated by Christ himself. He had been Lazarus. And then in the initiation, as it's described, he becomes uh, John. And uh, that's, again, interesting, because when you read the bo a book of John, you notice that John never 
says his own name. He, he says, the disciple whom the Lord loved. Mm-hmm. That's all he says in the whole book, right? Interesting. Steiner goes into that, of course, in ex- excruciating and magnificent detail <laughs> in his lecture cycle on the Gospel of John. And uh, so, so is this just too crazy? You kind of no, asked, and well, I kind of no, didn't. You know I, I kind of didn't want to talk about it. Give, no, no, no. Again, I think you've you've. You, I understand your position, and I think you've given enough to hint at. Yeah. What what is beneath that question? You know. But it's strange how it fits. It's strange how those things, when you read them and you look at what those people did. I mean, think of the influence of Aristotle. Mm-hmm. In, in in our our, 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 the birth of logic. I mean, logic as a codified understanding is permeates the consciousness of all of humanity. And that was given by Aristotle, whether we, on top of it all, with most of his stuff gone, we hardly have anything by, by Aristotle, except for people argue it's probably the notes of lectures and stuff that he gave because all this stuff, you know, was destroyed. And the, and the, the, the stuff that was left over was kept by the Arabs. And then eventually uh, got back to Europe and was translated from the Arabic. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's quite a story, you know what I mean? And then yeah. Aquinas takes it up and does this whole amazing thing with the intelligences and all this magnificent cosmology that comes out of that. Again, I, there's all these sides to these people as personalities that are very problematic, no doubt about it. But uh, we're looking more at this esoteric stream that's running through it all. So the argument that is this whole thing really culminated up to our time in this thing called anthroposophy that is, you know, trying to get a foothold on the world and help us see things in a richer, deeper, broader way than, than the way we do now. And hopefully help us, you know, overcome the crises that are screaming at us to grow up. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Um. I think, uh, you know, I, I have no more to add. It's been a very long conversation. I think it's a good ending to sort of give people, okay. a, give people a taste of who Steiner is and how deep this all goes and what it's connected back to. Um, but I think, you know, just another opportunity. So it's rudolfsteineraudio.com. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, so there's www.rudolfsteineraudio.com. There's the streaming service. That's rudolfsteiner.podbean.com, which is an app you get for your phone, Podbean. It's awkward to find stuff on there. And then it's also thrown up on a Dale Brunsvold channel on YouTube, but again, not very organized. <laughs> and then there's also a YouTube channel run by Rudolf Steiner Press out of England that that is got everything on it as well called uh, Rudolf Steiner Press Audio. So there's a bunch of places. And, and then, of course, on Apple I. Uh, Apple iTunes podcasts on there too. So I'll be sure to put all these links in the description. Yeah, if, if it uh, matters. Yeah, Dale Brunsvold, it's been an amazing conversation. Uh, I hope uh, I didn't alienate you there at the end, James. I no, apologize. No, 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 not at all. You, not at all. you kind it's of just... asked. <laughs> no, you, no, you didn't. No, you didn't, okay, no, no, right, you didn't uh, alienate yeah. me. It's, uh, right. it's that sometimes you, you almost you don't know how to respond to such things. You know what I mean? Sure, sure, absolutely. And I don't know any of that's true, you know? <laughs> it's just stuff you read and think about and wonder about, you know, and fascinating. Well, the Stein, I guess the Steinerian response would be it's up to listeners and yourselves to figure out if you believe it. Or or just do the research and the study and, and, and grow as a person to have the personal direct experiences yourself, maybe even yeah. a better thing to do, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know about believing, so I, I don't know what uh, I would do too, with that. Yeah, yeah, we spoke. It's about that it. old story. Yeah, I don't know what I would, how I would do that, and be self, be self-respecting. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Yeah, Dale, it's been, I, it's been fantastic. All right, sir. Thank and, you. Uh, Thank you so yeah, much. Thanks very much.